0: try to concentrate as best as we can on the uh, topic at, at hand. We are working through Systematic Theology 1, which is the first half of the study of God. And uh, Systematic Theology is simply the organized study of the doctrines of God. So we're trying to take the uh, the different doctrines in Scripture, organize them in a a clear as possible way, and um, and then make sure we understand them according to the Scriptures. The first week, we looked at the basic overview. Uh, the second week, we looked at the existence of God, that is that God exists, and how do we know that God exists? Anybody have any idea? How do we know that? Pardon me? Okay. God's Word tells us we know it. Okay. Okay. Uh, in the beginning, God. There's no proofs in the Scripture. There are no proofs in the Scripture that lay out, this is why God exists. It simply begins, in the beginning, God. And, um, and throughout the Scripture, it just assumes that people know that. In fact, Romans 1 makes it clear that, that, um, that we in fact know that. That is, all of God's people, uh, not, not just all of God's people, all people, they okay, know that God exists. They know in their heart. They can see it in the creation. That is, Romans 1 says that everyone has known that from the time of creation that His invisible attributes have been clearly seen His eternal power. They know at least that. Now, they, they don't know all the aspects of God, and that's why we need what's known as special revelation. And what do I mean when I say special revelation? Okay, the Word of God. Okay? And God's Word has come specially to people in many different ways throughout time. We talked about this on Wednesday night through miracles and through signs and through God speaking directly to people through Jesus Christ. And now for us, uh, as Paul said, it is the Word of God. That's God's special revelation. Now, what, we've, what, what I tried to do last week was I wanted to start showing you the attributes of God and um, we wanted to focus on those attributes last week that have to do with his greatness. And we called these categories, uh, we, we broke down his attributes into two one, his greatness, and the other, his goodness. Um, and what, what we meant by that was that, um so you don't want to see that yet, um, that we can't duplicate God's greatness. Okay, so all of those attributes that we were looking at, his omniscience, His omnipresence, His his omnipotence, His his eternality, uh, His sovereignty, His unchangeableness, those types of things are all exclusive to God. Do you understand what I mean when I say exclusive? Okay. That is that that only God has those attributes. We are not omniscient. We are not full of knowledge. That is that we we have all knowledge. Uh, We are not eternal by nature we take on immortality but we're not eternal that is we had a beginning god didn't um and so on so so there is no limit to god's power he has no beginning or end he's not constrained by anything outside of himself he never learns anything he never has a need and theologians call this the creator creature distinction Okay, that there is a wide gap between us and God. That, that we cannot meet up to His infinity. And uh, and so we focus on three main features of His greatness. That is, His power, His knowledge, and then His sovereignty. And in short, our response to God's greatness is not that we should copy it as if, um, as if we try to be more omnipotent. Okay, we'll never get to that place where we're all-powerful. Otherwise, we would become God. We're not going to become God. Okay, We are different. Um, so, instead of trying to copy these things, we stand in awe of God because of them and submit ourselves to Him accordingly. Alright, any questions or comments on last week's topic, God's greatness? Alright, well, let's turn now to something that we can mimic, and this is what's known as the goodness of God. Okay, we're breaking down as attributes the goodness of God. Um, that is, that, that these are attributes that He allows us to share in, um, that, that we can share with. We can reflect God's character by mimicking or patterning our lives after these attributes. Now, that doesn't mean that we can do it perfectly, okay, but we can be like God in these ways. All right. So let's give me let me start just by giving you a few examples just so you can get an idea of what we're talking about. First, that God is truth. God is truth. He is genuine and he is honest. John 17:3 calls him the only true God. Second, God is faithful. That is he is completely reliable, familiar verse first corinthians ten thirteen No temptation has seized you except of this, what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with every temptation give you uh, a way of escape so that you will be able to st- or or uh, uh, a way that you'll be able to stand up under it. okay God is faithful don't want to miss that key um phrase or sentence within that verse, that God is faithful, he's completely re- reliable. We can follow that. See, see how we can mimic these? We can we can mimic his faithfulness, his truth, and then uh, his mercy. Okay, we're not going to uh, delve into these too deeply this morning. We're going to give most of our time to three others. All right, when we looked at the category of God's greatness. I said that they are governed by his infinity. That is that if we want to take all those attributes we could say about each of them that God is infinite. Okay? We can't be like that. We're not infinite. Okay? These these categories of God's goodness, these three is along with the other three that we're going to look at are governed by one thing. And that is his holiness. Okay? That every single one of these moral attributes, these are moral. These have to do with with our uh, the rightness and wrongness of something, they're all governed by this one thing, this one attribute, and that is God's holiness. Now, let me just try to explain that first, and then I'll and then I'll prove it uh, from the scriptures. In fact, turn to Isaiah chapter six while I explain this first point. Isaiah chapter six. It's always good to look at the scriptures. For ourselves, I, I can stand up and here hear and and read through scriptures for you uh, without you looking at them. But what I want you to see is that this is actually God's word. Okay, and we don't have time to do that for every verse, but I do want you to be able to see that. Okay, first, God is separate from His creation. That is, He is transcendent. He is He is above us. He is far above us. The term holy here has something to do with the idea of being. Set apart. And this is the major emphasis of the Old Testament teaching with regard to God's holiness. Notice in Isaiah chapter 6 would someone read verses 1 through 3 for us? Mm. Mm-hmm. Each one has six things with flying to cover his face. And the flying good sigh. And one cry is fine, other than another arrow. Alright, so notice what the uh Isaiah gets this vision of heaven. He sees these seraphim, that's the angels. Okay he sees these these seraphim around the throne, and they're covering uh, two are covering their face, two covering uh, the wings that is of the seraphim, two covering the face, two covering the feet, two cover two are the ones that he used to fly, and one called to another holy, holy, holy okay now there's lots of words that we could use to try to describe God, but what you're going to find in scripture as you'll see in revelation or or as we saw in revelation chapter four with the with those surrounding the throne, the song that they sing is what? It's one of the thrice that you are the thrice holy God. Okay, now now we could have they could have used lots of other terms. They could have said love, love, love. Now would that be true of God? I mean God is love. First John four ten, I think it is. Okay, what about faithful? Faithful, faithful, faithful. And that would also be true. But but the but the fundamental moral attribute of God, the one that governs all the rest, that is, when we look at each one of these, truth, faithfulness, mercy, and these other three we're going to look at today, you could say that they're all, uh, they all are grounded in God's holiness. That God is holy. And so the, the way that people describe Him when they see Him is that He is holy. That He is set apart. That He is, uh, as you'll see in this next point here, that He is morally or you could say ethically pure. Okay, so to say that God is holy means that He is not part of the universe, the universe is not part of Him, that He is unique, He is separate, that creator-creature distinction. There's this gulf fixed between Him and us. And that means that it's not just in His existence, but also in His activities, that the way that He acts towards people he always does what is right. He never does what is wrong. He is completely holy. Alright, so these are the. this is the fundamental moral attribute. This is the attribute that will drive all the rest, that will be, be behind all the rest. So let's look at the first one. We're going to look at three primary char- characteristics or attributes of God. The first is that God is holy in love. God is holy in love. Love. God's character defines the nature of true love. Turn to 1 John. We will spend some time in 1 John, several verses in 1 John, speak to God's attributes. And I'll just have to reference some of these other passages that I bring up. But 1 John chapter 4, and again if if someone bowed before the throne and and cried out "Love, love, love" to refer to God, they would not be wrong in doing that but I think the the point that I was making earlier is that 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 love is driven by something it's not just an emotional feeling first John four eight says "The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. What does the Bible tell us about the characteristic of God's love. At least five things. Number one, God's love is an act of the will, not merely an emotion or not primarily an emotion. That is, okay. we don't want to think that God doesn't have an emotional love for us because I think He does. I think that's part of His person. When we talked about the person of God, when we looked at that the first week, I said that a person is someone who has a mind, will and emotions. Okay, that is they have knowledge, they have a will, they're able to act out on what they know and then they have emotions, they have feelings. That's how God is. God is a person as well. Okay, so we don't want to disconnect it, disconnect emotions completely from God as if he is a a stone type of creature, as if Uh, He doesn't have any feelings. He certainly does. The Scriptures speak of that. But what I'm suggesting here is that that is not the primary feature of His love. That's not the primary focus of His love. Listen to Hosea 14.4. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. Who's he talking about there? Who's he talking about in Hosea 14? Israel. Okay. And Israel, in in good standing with God right now, in, in Hosea 14, Not at all, right? What's the example that God likens His love to Israel? What's the metaphor that He uses? A real-life metaphor. Yeah, exactly. It's Hosea marrying a prostitute. He's saying, you're the prostitute, I'm Hosea. But, But notice what He says here. I will love them freely. You see, if God's love were governed by... His emotions primarily, what would have happened to Israel a long time ago? They'd have been gone. They'd have been toast. He'd have burned them up in a second, but that's not how God's love is. God's love is primarily an act of the will. That I will love them no matter what. All right, secondly, God's love is governed by other attributes. It's governed by other attributes. In our day, true love is sentimentality. People feel um, that to be loving, that that one has to ignore sin and overlook error. We have this word, this this uh, buzzword in our society, tolerance. Okay, we have to just ignore all that sin. If I really want to love you, I'm just going to overlook all that sin and error. But but true lo- biblical love is grounded in what primary moral attribute of God. Holiness. Okay? God can't just set sin aside and say, I love you anyway. Let's just forget about all that sin. Okay? God's love does not con- contradict His other attributes. Do you see? It always functions within the sphere of truth and it always insists on justice. Psalm 33, 5. The earth is full of His unfailing love. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. Okay? Number three, God's love is sacrificial. Our love, which I said was uh, often sentimental in our society, our love tends to be selfish. That um, we're happy to love someone as long as we can get something out of it. As long as we can get something in in return. But see, true godly love requires giving. Giving. Uh, that is, sacrificing ourselves for the benefit of another. What is the supreme example of the self-sacrificial nature of God's love? Exactly. He presented, He gave up His greatest gift to us, His Son. That perfect union that He had with His Son was now now turned into an estranged relationship because He took upon Himself, that is, Jesus, God put upon Jesus our sin. Our guilt, our shame. That was a supreme act of God's love. In fact, First John 4, 9 and 10. Look, look at that. You should have your Bibles open to that. Verse 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Anyone have any idea what propitiation is? Okay. Okay. It's it's actually the satisfaction of God's wrath. That is, we justly deserve God's wrath to be poured out on us. And how would that be displayed in our lives? If God's wrath were completely poured out on us eternally. you go to hell, right? Eternal death. Okay. But, but propitiation is satisfying that wrath by taking that eternal judgment, condemnation, and putting it upon whom? Put it upon Christ, right? And this is love, verse 8. Or or God is love. And how is that love displayed? By God sending His Son. You see, God's love is sacrificial. You see, uh, or to put it another way, we tend to say, I love you because you are lovable. That... I have learned to love you more and more because I've seen more of who you are. But God says, I love you because I am love and in spite of your unloveliness. Now, you are my enemy before you come to Christ, right? But God loves us. God's love is sacrificial. Uh, I think I actually just got ahead of myself. God's love is not based on conditions. God doesn't say, I will love you if. God loves with no ifs attached. He does not say, I will love you as long as you give me this, this, and this. He's not looking for conditions. He he doesn't ask you to give Him anything in return. Remember, God doesn't need anything. God is self-sufficient. We saw that last week. And so He loves us in spite of our sinful condition. Listen to Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. While. Not we were on our way to becoming more perfect. Then Christ died for us. No. While we were sinners. So God says, in spite of your unloveliness, I will love you. Number five, God's love is eternal. We again, with our sentimental love that we have in our society, we often talk about falling in and out of love. I've really fell in love with that person, or yeah, I just can't be married to that person anymore because they're not i just I just don't love them anymore. I fell out of love with them uh We talk about love more like a, a like a, um a virus, like we caught a cold or something. But genuine love does not just happen. It's it's a choice. And so God is that way. Okay, God doesn't fall in and out of love with you. He chooses to love you. Because love is a part of his very nature. And so he chooses to love those who are in Christ. Here's what he says about Israel I have loved you, Jeremiah thirty one three, with an everlasting love. So let's come to a definition here and then I'll take questions. God's love is the character quality in God that causes Him to freely and eternally choose. See that act of the will? Not not primarily emotion. Choose to accomplish His will in our lives for our benefit. No strings attached there. No if they do this. He chooses to love some in a special way. All right. No, I didn't give that to you. There you go. Choose and benefit. I want to make application really quick here. But if you have any, do you have any questions on, on God's love? Okay. Governed by His holiness. All right. Let's make application for ourselves because we don't want to just look at God's attributes and say, well, that's nice. Great. Great that He's loving. We want to think about it for ourselves. So, number one. Notice this phrase because this is going to come up again. Believers share in the character quality of God's holy love. Just as parents pass on their characteristics to their children, so our heavenly Father passes on His attributes to His children. First John 4:7. Look at there in your Bible. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Okay, so we could ask the question to John, who is born of God and who knows God at the end of the verse? See that there? Who is it? What does it say? Everyone who loves. Okay, now the the, uh, object of that phrase is debated, whether that's everyone who loves God or everyone who loves others. And... um, and there's good arguments on both sides. And the point, I think, is that a genuinely loving person, that what they're showing their love to God by being loving to others in a godly way, that shows that they are really of God. Okay, So we share in God's character quality of love. Second, there's another phrase that will pop up in all three of these. The presence of genuine love in one's life is evidence of a relationship with God. Look down to verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God. The one who does not love does not know God. Remember, how is God's love displayed to people who are unlovely? Or, or how is God's character displayed to those who are unlovely? He still loves the, them. So that means that, that we need to do the same thing. Jesus said this when He was teaching His disciples. You know, even unbelievers love those who love them back. That is, even unbelievers love lovable people. It's not hard to do. Here's the real test of a Christian. Love someone who's unlovely and do it for a long time. That's the true test of genuine love. That's what God did for us. Number three, genuine love is demonstrated in the life of a believer through obedience to God. Obedience to God. John 14:15. If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. But the NIV says, "You will obey what I command." It's not primarily emotional. It is an act of the will, an act of it is a choice that we make. Are we going to obey God or not? God says to do this. If we say we love God, then we keep His commands. If we say we love Jesus, then we obey what Jesus commanded that simple so that means that true biblical love always functions within the sphere of truth number four God's love for the believer will result in discipline for disobedience so if love is demonstrated by obedience then God cannot tolerate disobedience and so um, God insists that we obey and so he 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 um, disciplines those who, those whom He loves. Hebrews chapter, um, Hebrews chapter 12. I think we looked at that last Sunday in the evening service. Alright, any questions on God's love? How we can mimic it? How we should be seeking to be more loving? Alright, next. God is holy in righteousness. Lots of words in the Scriptures that refer to this same concept. Okay, the word right or just or justice, righteousness, um, those all have to do with this concept in God. So, let's look at these uh, four characteristics of God's holy righteousness. First, righteousness is conformity to a standard. In Leviticus 19, it says, Do not use dishonest standards, but use honest scales and honest weights. The word there that's used, that's translated dishonest, is actually unrighteous. Do not use unrighteous standards. So, so, righteousness is conformity to a standard. There is an established standard, and if we're going to be righteous, then we have to meet up to that standard. But here's something that is unique about God, and that is that God doesn't meet up to a standard. He is the standard. God is the standard of justice, of righteousness. There's no remember God is not constrained by anything outside of himself. So so no one says this is right and wrong and you have to act this way. No, God is the creator. He determines what's right and wrong and then we follow it. He doesn't have to meet up to a standard, he is the standard. Deuteronomy 32 3 and 4. God is rock, His works are perfect, all His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is He. Number three, righteousness requires the punishment of disobedience. That is, failure to conform to a standard, God's going to act. Daniel 9:14. the Lord did not hesitate to bring disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything He does, yet we have not obeyed Him. What kind of a person would we call a judge who did not punish disobedience? That is, he saw clearly from the evidence in his trial that that was wrong, that was against the law. What kind of a judge would we call him if he just let that guy go free? Unjust, Unjust judge, right? So so God has to to keep people in line by, by bringing judgment upon disobedience. And that also means that He must reward those who are obedient. Hebrews 6.10 God is not unjust. He will not forget your labor, your work, and your labor of love you have shown to Him as you have helped the people and continue to help Him. So, the fact that God is righteous or just means that He punishes disobedience and He rewards obedience. So, let's come to a definition of God's righteousness. And really, the definition is this last sentence down here. So, these other ones are just for your your uh, blanks kind of to explain a little bit. God's righteousness is the aspect of His character that ensures that all He does conforms to His own perfection and also demands that all others conform to His perfect standard. So, God's justice or righteousness is the aspect in which He rewards obedience and punishes disobedience. Well, that's nice. Thank you for sharing that God is righteous. What does that mean for us? That's, really where it comes down to... You'll just have to imagine what's up there. Those letters there. Okay. First, that means that believers... Again, the same phrase. Believers share the character quality of God's holy righteousness. Turn back to 1 John 2.29. Maybe one page back for you. If you know, 1 John 2.29, if you know that He, God, is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness, is born of Him. As believers, we are in the process of change. That, that is daily, God is conforming us into the image of Christ. And that means that those who could never do anything godly, those who are not, as John calls it, practicing righteousness, are not born of God. Okay, they are not conforming to God's stand, standard and so if we are going to share in God's righteousness then we need to be practicing righteousness second and this will give us evidence of our relationship with God this is what we mentioned before the proof of your faith the assurance of your faith you you want to know for sure that you're a Christian be practicing righteousness follow God's command 1 John 3 1 John 3, 7 Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Now, it doesn't say the one who practices is righteous because of his own... or, or that is that he is accepted before God because of his righteousness. No, we need to get the order straight here. Because God is righteous and, as we see in other parts of Scripture, because He has saved us, the natural result will be that, as God's children, we will respond, follow after His character qualities, His righteousness. We will be righteous. So we should be righteous in our thoughts and words and actions. Number four, God's just. Uh, yeah, God's justice guarantees that any good deeds that believers do for Him will not be forgotten. I mentioned Hebrews 6.10, that He will not forget your work, your labor of love, and so on. Okay, that doesn't mean that we're going to get to a place of perfect righteousness, perfect love. But do you realize that the unbeliever cannot be righteous in any way? That they cannot be genuinely loving? That is, they cannot display a godly love Unbeliever cannot do that. Because they're either doing it in the wrong way or they're doing it for the wrong motive. You know where you get motive from? You get motive from being a Christian. You're doing it not for yourself anymore. I love you because I want to be loved in return. I love you because I want to be noticed more. Appreciated more. I love you. I love you, other people, because... I love God. Because God's love is displayed in me through me loving other people. Unbelievers can't do that, you see. They can't do that with righteousness either. They can't. All of their, all of their best acts, Isaiah says, are like filthy what? Like filthy rags. are like things you would throw out. God says they're, not, they're worthless to me because you're doing them the wrong way or you're doing them with the wrong motive. But as a Christian, you can... Be righteous. You can be loving. You can mimic your Father in that way. Any questions on God's love or God's righteousness? Oh, did I miss one here? Yes. Not be forgotten. Thank you. Don't want to forget that one. All right. Number three, God is holy and grace. This is one of the most misused and abused words in theology. Um, yeah, it's a very simple concept. The idea in English has to do with stooping or bowing down. Um, and it communicates the idea of reaching down in a condescending way with favor and kindness. That's the idea of grace. Okay, So let's look at some aspects of God's grace. Number one, God's grace is undeserved Favor. In spite of us, he gives us grace. It's undeserved. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace, you see? It'd actually be wages. We would we would earn it. But because he's giving it, even though we don't deserve it, he makes it grace. Romans three, twenty three for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God's grace is undeserved. God's grace is unearned. Most people, you talk to the average person on the street, they're going to tell you that they think they can earn God's favor. That's why most people think that they're okay. That, that when they get to the end of this life, they're going to be fine. Because they feel they've done enough things to earn God's favor. God's favor. But God will not be manipulated. He is not an unjust judge. He will not overlook sin. It has to be paid for in some way. We understand that our sin is paid for by Christ. That makes it grace, that it is undeserved, it is unearned. Ephesians 2 8 9 For it is by grace that you have been saved, and not of works, so that no one may boast. It's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Several times in those two verses it says it's not of you. Titus 3, um, 5 and 6 talk about it's not based on the works of righteousness which we have done, as if our pile of righteousness is going to earn God's favor, because it is unearned. And it is actually, surprisingly, grace is unwanted favor. People know that God exists. Everybody knows that God exists. And yet, they don't want to have anything to do with God. Romans 1 says that they suppress, that they they try to cover up and bury the fact that God exists. Why? Because they don't want to submit to Him. They want to continue in their sin. They want to enjoy it. People don't want to have... We didn't want to have anything to do with God before we came to Christ. Um, And so, when anyone talks about you know having a relationship with God not anyone but when a lot of people talk about having a relationship with God what they often mean is they want to have a relationship as long as they can receive the benefits of that relationship now we shouldn't totally exclude that and say well God I'm coming to you and I don't want any benefits I'll just take you know whatever that's not that's not what I'm suggesting but but that but when we come to God we actually are coming to God for God and that's something that we need to continually work on we're coming for God. That is, that, that if you take everything away, like Job, you can take everything away in this life. You can take my health. You can take my family. You can take all my wealth. You know what? I'm not going to turn away from you because I love you for you. That's what God's doing in us. And uh, Romans 3.11 says that there is no one who understands, no one who seeks, no one who wants God, no one No one wants him. No one seeks after him. In fact, Romans eight talks about how uh, we are uh, we are against God. We are we are contrary to God, and and we don't even want to come to Him. God's grace is unwanted. It's undeserved, unearned, and unwanted favor. So, we could define it. Is That simply, God's grace is undeserved, unearned, unwanted favor given to condemned sinners. Remember, in spite of us. Now, I don't have time to go into a whole lot with regard to how theologians talk about grace. There's two primary aspects of God's grace. One is called common grace. Okay, what does common mean? It means it, go, it it falls on everybody. Okay, let me just give you a um, few examples here. Um, that God shows His grace to all people by allowing them to know that He exists. Okay, that's actually a, a that's actually a um, a means or a result of His common grace. That is, that every single person has the knowledge that God exists. And because of God's common grace, evil is restrained in the world. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about how um, right now the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit in this age, is restraining Satan. you imagine how bad it's going to be during the time of tribulation? Because that's actually what's being talked about there in 2 Thessalonians. That during that time, in the great day of the Lord, He's going to remove his restraint from Satan and his demons. They're going to have free reign on this earth, pretty much. I mean, they're still, remember, they're still on a leash. God still has ultimate control. uh, but, But as free a reign as they'll ever have, which is just simply amazing. The fact that Satan doesn't do all that he can to you right now is a testimony to God's common grace the fact that Satan doesn't do all that he can to people who are unbelievers and will die unbelievers, the fact that Satan doesn't destroy them, consume them at the time of their birth or at some point in their life as a result of God's common grace, that He restrains evil, that He allows us to live in a somewhat free society. And because of God's common grace, did I miss one? Oh, it's down there at the bottom. Because of God's common grace, um, you know what? I don't think I put that third one in there. Uh, God is patient with mankind. Do you have a blank for that? Okay, I didn't. I just didn't put it on my. So God is patient. That is that He doesn't destroy us right away as He could because of our sin. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some have understood slowly. He is patient, patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter three, nine. So what does God's grace mean for us, especially? Okay, because what I'm talking about here is that God's rain falls on the just and the whom? And the unjust. Okay, so that's God's common grace. that He doesn't just bring a little rain cloud and, and put it over the righteous person's farm. And drop it there. Okay, it, it falls on everybody. God is commonly gracious to all people. But now what we want to look at is that God is specially gracious to believers. God is specially gracious to believers. So first, we as believers share in the quality of God's holy graciousness. And that means that we ought to mimic God's graciousness. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Just as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Because God has shined His grace on you by giving Christ, what ought we to do? Be kind. Compassionate. Forgiving. Okay, so we share in that. Secondly, you can imagine what this, or you can you can guess what this is. The presence of grace in one's life. That is, not that you're receiving grace, but the presence of outgoing grace, outworking grace. That is the if you are displaying grace to other people, then that's evidence that God and you have a relationship. It's one of the ways that that God shows that that you are His. Number three, special grace of God results in salvation to those who believe. We are saved only because of the undeserved, unearned, unwanted kindness of God. And so God's special grace comes down on those who believe. That's how we get connected to grace. That's how we get connected to Christ. So that's, that's the means by which God accomplishes His love, His, uh, His uh, grace to you. It's through belief in Jesus Christ. Number four, the special grace of God results in spiritual growth. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God is appeared to bring salvation. Okay, there's there's number three. God's grace brings salvation, but it also does something else. It teaches us to do what? To deny or to say no to ungodliness and worldly loss and to live soberly, righteously. So to turn from evil and to turn towards righteousness. That's what God's grace does for you. It it brings you on to God. It, It makes you more holy makes you into the image of Jesus Christ. And so, any opportunity that you and I have to learn and grow in Christ is a result of God's grace to us. Any opportunity that that we have to learn and to grow in grace in Christ is, is an evidence of God's grace to us. And uh, we should be gracious to other people because of God's grace to us. If you constantly walk through life frustrated, that's probably an indication that you don't fully understand or want to submit to God's grace for you. Think about the person that you pray for the most. And when was the last time you, you asked God to change them, to make them more godly? Hey, we probably do that often, right? The person we pray for most, we ask them to be more godly. That's a good thing. But when's the last time you thanked God for that person? That's that's maybe a thorn in your flesh. When's the last time that you are grateful to God for that person? If you're not thankful to God for His grace, if you're constantly coming to God's throne, and and this. Really struck me this week. If you're constantly coming to God's throne with a litany of requests, never approaching his gates with thanksgiving and entering his courts with praise, it's a good indication that you don't understand grace. You think that you're entitled to God's grace. But you can't be entitled to God's grace, do you see? You can't be. It's unearned, it's unwanted, it's undeserved. And if you're not coming to God thanking Him for what He has done for you, reflecting often on your family and on your church and on this country and and on your, uh, your job, whatever. If you're not thanking God for those things, it's evidence that you don't understand or have lost sight of grace. It is undeserved, unearned, unwanted. And yet, God continually pours it out on us because He loves us with an Everlasting love, just like he did with Israel. Any questions or comments? Next week is uh, creation and providence. See, um, still working through the theology of God. we'll move on to the theology of Christ and the spirit and the church and and the, and man and and lots of other things, but but uh, working through the theology of God. understanding. Remember, we can't understand ourselves rightly until we understand God. And so we're working to understand God as much as He's given us the ability to. And um, as we do, we'll understand ourselves in light of of Him. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of Your great attributes, Your infinite attributes as we looked at last week. And we are also amazed at Your moral attributes, Your holy attributes, your your holy attributes that set you apart from all other creation that make you unique. And we're thankful that you have uh, designed it so that we can mimic those things, albeit not perfectly, you have allowed us to share in your holiness in these ways. Help us to think about these things rightly and apply them to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.